Welcome back to uh, Barbell Medicine YouTube channel where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is Dr. Austin Baraki. He's the second most handsome doctor in the world. We're in San Diego. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This is a question and answer session. Thank you so much for coming. If you have to leave, we understand. Uh, and if we don't get to your question, you should post it on a forum. It's at forum.barbellmedicine.com. Also, if it doesn't get approved there because it is a moderated forum, you should first try uh, Austin his DMs, direct messages. Uh, he's very responsive. Uh, if he doesn't respond, then I would move to Tom. Tom's also, again, great with DMs. Um, then slide into Leah's DMs. And if none of those work, then uh, we recommend following a different fitness outlet for your questions, because <laughs> we just can't be bothered. So we're gonna get into these questions. Question number one. If an elderly individual who is at a healthy weight but under-muscled starts resistance training, should they be eating a caloric surplus to build muscle, given that they are eating enough protein? Uh, well, okay, this is a good question. Uh, in general, I don't know that I recommend anybody for weight gain unless they want to. So if their personal preference is, I'd like to gain weight for whatever reason, either strength is the most important thing to them and they have, a, uh, they have their room to grow, that's fine. If they want to gain more muscle mass just uh, for their own accord, that's fine. But just for like reducing the potential of bad health outcomes from happening, you can do that without gaining a substantial amount of body weight. And a person new to resistance training is, has a high likelihood of building a lot of lean body mass without increasing their body weight. We see that all the time in individuals with obesity. They simultaneously reduce their waist circumference and body fat while increasing their lean body mass. Um, and then in, in particular, uh, I don't know that gaining uh, a bunch of weight at an elderly age is uh, likely to be a great idea just because- If they're already at a healthy, healthy weight, yes. as is yes. kind of a qualifier in the question. I mean, I see a lot of elderly folks who are extremely underweight. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's not often that I see individuals who are like, have made it into their 80s with morbid obesity. Oftentimes they don't, they get kind of selected out a little bit earlier than that. For, through various mechanisms, things that we've talked about this weekend, the medical conditions that can arise. Um, so oftentimes the people who make it that far tend to be pre pretty thin and frail on the other end of the spectrum. In those situations, then uh, getting adequate nutrition and putting them into a calorie surplus, if we can, does become a priority. But if somebody is already at a healthy weight, then I would just lean on getting them to train rather than worrying about getting them in a calorie surplus. Well, you know what the internet's gonna say. What? Don't you know that in elderly population that class one obesity has the lowest all-cause mortality rates. How do you explain that? The question is saying that they're at a healthy weight. So then I would ask how we're defining healthy weight here. Sure. You know, well, um, what I'm getting at is, that, is that explanation uh, it basically ignores, again, a few things that Dr. Baraki said. So individuals, individuals who tend to carry uh, a lot of excess adipose tissue tend to get filtered out when we get to that elderly population. So they tend to not make it uh, that far. And uh, those who do, there's, obviously there's a survivor bias there. Uh, and in addition, uh, once you become elderly, uh, having a low BMI, so like in normal or particularly underweight, represents either chronic illness or increase in frailty. And so both of those things portend bad outcomes. We wouldn't necessarily want somebody who's got a normal BMI or is slightly in the, the lower realms of the overweight BMI range to necessarily say, I gotta get my BMI to over 30 because that's gonna reduce my risk of premature mortality or right. reduce disease burden. Yep. All right, sick, we took on the internet. There you go. Boom. What is something you wish you better prepared for during medical school? Like, are we restricting this to just academic topics? Open-ended. I don't I know, like but we it should something like, potentially interesting. Yeah. Um, I actually had a pretty unique path into medical school. It's like I was the worst applicant with respect to getting into med school. So when I applied, the average uh, GPA for people getting into med school was 3.6. Average MCAT was 31, right? Um, I had a 2.9 GPA and a 31 on the MCAT. So acceptable MCAT, terrible GPA. So I went to, and got a master's degree right, to, sh to shore up my resume. The problem is most medical schools don't care about your master's because they don't know how rigorous your master's was unless they have a similar program at their school. So in any event, I had to scramble just to get into a medical school. I almost didn't make it. Um, in any event, what I, would, what I learned during my master's program was how to study. 
So for me, I learned that like space repetition learning. So again, just seeing stuff on a regular basis, things that I, were, I was more familiar with, seeing less often, but still reminding myself, seeing stuff I was less familiar with more frequently and asking myself questions about those topics really helped me learn this stuff. Um, but I learned how to study during my master's program. A lot of my colleagues that I went to medical school with had problems learning because they hadn't taken that leap from undergrad to medical school yet. And so they spent a lot of excess time trying to figure out how to study. So if I was making a recommendation for people, like what do you need to do before medical school? My only recommendation to you is to learn how to study for yourself. I don't, you don't need to read all these medical textbooks or like, you know, try to take these classes in undergrad so you get a leg up because it's not a leg up. It's totally different. But you need to learn how to study. They could develop good study habits. So for me personally, what would I uh, have done differently? I would have actually gone to Norfolk and picked out a, uh, a living situation that was a little bit better. So I lived in that like retirement home thing, which is uh, the Hague Towers, mm -hmm. it, which was fine because it was real quiet, you know retirement but the problem was they whenever they got rain the whole parking lot just completely flooded so I just got in this new car right I felt like I was on top of the world and we got this nor'easter which I don't know what that is because I'm from the midwest we have tornadoes and floods but when they say nor'easter I'm like I don't know easter egg whatever it's like it's a, it's a party I parked my car in this uh, you know, surprisingly barren parking lot. Nobody was around me. I was like, oh man, I got a sweet parking spot. And everybody's, nobody's here. It's interesting. There was no standing water in the parking lot, but it was raining. And then <laughs> I come out two and a half hours later, the water, no joke, is up to my side view mirror. Yeah, so they end up totaling the car out. So I wish that I would have known, one, like, let's go not live in a retirement home because I feel like that limited my social, you know, sort of <laughs> circle first year. And then I also would have like not... I parked my car there on that particular day. <laughs> Regrets. Regrets. Yeah. Yes. I has them. Yeah. My trajectory into medical school was very different, and I did know how to study before I got there, and that set me up for a different experience along the way. Um, I'll, I'll take a different spin on this, I guess. Diff better prepared for during medical school. Something I wish I had learned maybe a bit more effectively over the course of medical school is a lot of the messages that we delivered to you guys this weekend particularly a lot of the stuff about behavior change and how to talk to people and how to make it happen and how important of a skill it is to be able to have these difficult conversations. Because, um, you know, I teach residents and medical students on a daily basis on, in the hospital. And when I do feedback with them at the end of their rotations, you know, I always tell them, like, anybody can teach you the, the medicine here. Anybody can teach you how the kidneys work or how the heart pumps and stuff like that. But I think far fewer people are going to teach you how to have these conversations with people, how to have these, you know, elicit the information you need, how to provide the reassurance that people who are in a sick, you know, frail, vulnerable situation need to hear. Um, and so that's something that I had to learn uh, partially. I mean, we got some exposure to that kind of stuff, but I, in retrospect, know that it was not as much as we actually need. And I think that the emphasis is obviously you have to learn a lot of detail, physiology, biochemistry, a lot of stuff like that. But I think the the degree to which being able to have these like social skills is important as being a doctor at the bedside with a patient, I don't think it receives as much emphasis as it deserves in, in pre-clinical education. And so that's something I wish I would have gotten more of, I think. Yeah, to their credit, they did do a substantial amount of training. Yeah. We were I just, just too it, stupid. Yeah, I just think it needs to be even more. Yeah, we're just, <laughs> we're just too dumb. Yeah. yeah, all right. As long as we agree that we're dumb. Everybody's stupid. All right, including us. Uh, question number three. The notes refer to more than two standard drinks of alcohol as a risk factor for high blood pressure. That's true. Could you please clarify what you mean by a standard drink? Yes, this is, there's a wide variety between different countries. You uh, actually printed, uh, printed this out. So effectively, in the U.S., we're talking like 14 grams of pure alcohol, which I know that you guys are carrying your scales when you go out to the bar. <laughs> okay. and measuring yeah, grams. But in other countries, it's 10 grams. <laughs> uh, in the U.S., in general, we talk about this like one uh, beer, 12-ounce beer, or one glass of wine. But again, how big is your glass? So that's problematic. Uh, it's five ounces on average, and then one and a half ounces of like a hard alcohol. That's a standard drink in the United States. Assuming it's 80 proof, because you'll have more grams of alcohol in a higher proof spirit. So like... If I, this is about 60 proof, I think. All right. But, or no, not 60 proof. It's, it's uh, percent, my bad. Yeah, so it's 120. Yeah, yeah. so more grams of Math. alcohol. 
Are you sure math isn't the thing that you wanted to learn during medical <laughs> school? <laughs> hey. Yes. All right. Suggestions for isometric core work. I've seen planks mentioned in your content, but triceps seem to be the limiter on those for me. Oh, yeah, I see. Um, so if you're having, uh, so the reason, I guess I'll start over. The reason why I prefer isometric sort of ab, direct ab training, if you're going to do it for strength training purposes, is that that's really their kind of role in the big four that we tend to get asked the most questions about. Also, this is barbell medicine, not like functional fitness medicine. Kettlebell medicine was also taken, so like we have to like form our niche somewhere, so it's barbell medicine. So in general, the role of the uh, uh, abs during those movements tend to be isometric. So I like planks, I like pal-off presses, I like ab wheel rollouts, either from uh, kneeling ab wheel rollouts or if you can do them from your toes, that's cool. I also like uh, sort of V-sit uh, progressions. Um, L-sit progressions are usually beyond most individuals, but so I think most folks can do planks. If you can't do those, then the pal-off presses tend to be uh, pretty, pretty good. And I know somebody at home sitting on a couch saying, planks, Pfft. I don't need a plank doesn't do anything. I'll just low bar back squat my way to uh, top tier, high level abdominal strength. Well, guy at home, um, the recent research on this suggests that a plank and a six RM back squat have about the same amount of abdominal activation, which means that a plank is like pretty good because it's not the same level of fatigue that you get from a six RM squat. Right, six at RP10 would be a substantially fatiguing set for most individuals compared to just doing a 30-second plank. So um, I'm not I'm not saying that you should do planks instead of squats, but in addition to, it'd be fine. On the other hand, if you said I don't want to do any additional direct ab training because I find it boring and whatever, that's fine too. Who would say something? <laughs> Austin does a yearly GPP session. <laughs> He's just living off previously developed cardiorespiratory fitness from swimming, and at some point, he'll do it. It'll be bi-yearly, and then you'll just keep titrating, keep titrating it up. Yeah, I mean, you're free to edit this out, but yeah, I don't do ab work. So. Yeah, I'm fine with admitting that. Yeah, that's fine. I think though, if, if people are asking about it, sure. I'm happy with you doing more physical activity, and I want it to be of the correct fatigue ra- uh, stimulus to sure. fatigue ratio. That's so. fair. I. Is non-HDL cholesterol in the 20 to 40 range still considered okay for someone on statins? Yep. Next so, question. No, okay. <laughs> so that, assuming that they met oh, 20 to 40 milligrams per deciliter, uh, I'm wondering if the question is, is phrased this way because that's a very low level uh, for a non-HDL cholesterol level. And so a lot of times there's concerns about can these numbers get too low? Uh, there's a lot of fear out there about pushing the num- these numbers too low being associated with cognitive issues. Uh, that's been studied and hasn't really been shown convincingly. Theoretically, about risk for hemorrhagic stroke, also been studied, not really shown super convincingly. Uh, and then a number of other outcomes, such that now the argument or the idea has been that, in general, lower is better, and we don't see a threshold where pushing these, nu- these blood lipid numbers, particularly the blood lipids that tend to be associated with cardiovascular disease, pushing them lower increases risk. So in general, lower is fine. That doesn't necessarily concern me. What I would say, though, is that you know, if somebody's levels are that low, my question is, why are they on the medication? Because if they're on the medicine because they've had a bunch of heart attacks before, then I'm like, cool, okay, that makes sense. I want to push them as low as possible because they're super high risk because they've had heart attacks and strokes before. If they've never had a heart attack or a stroke before and they're on one of these medicines for what we call primary prevention, preventing one of these or reducing the risk of these events, I should say, uh, uh, when they've never had one before, maybe they'd already be below that target threshold without the medicine, in which case I'm wondering, do they actually need it? So I'm fine with pushing these numbers that low in somebody who's very high risk. If they're not super, super high risk, then I'm like, if they're below 130 on that non-HDL, then I'm not worried about it, uh, unless they have other reasons to have really high risk, like they're smokers, diabetics, high blood pressure, things like that, that would alter my decision making. How much did uh, Pfizer pay you to say that? <laughs> Just uh, shilling for statins now? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Speaking of statins and cholesterol and all that other fun stuff, uh, red meat, chicken, Fish are all frequently cited when discussing diet. What about pork or other poultry? Yeah, what about them? This is a kosher establishment, okay? We don't talk about pork. No, um, (laughs) 
So uh, in general, with respect to red meat, uh, so we're talking about like pork, veal, uh, obviously beef. Um, there's actually a pretty expanded topic that includes, or expanded category that all includes uh, those foods and others uh, for red meat. Um, with respect to chicken, uh, fish, other lean protein sources, I'm cool with all of them. There's not really a lean protein source that I'm not like willing to give you a thumbs up on. My the, or the caveat that I'll give you is that for red meat, which again includes this sort of veal, beef, uh, pork, uh, offal, is it offal? Offal? Lamb, sure. Yeah, whatever. whatever. All that stuff. I would recommend limiting that to three times per week, just based on the current guidelines for red meat, for red meat intake. And uh, we discussed that thoroughly in the article, The Science of Red Meat Intake. So uh, effectively, It'd be difficult to eat more red meat than that more often and also stay under that 10% of total daily calories from saturated fat uh, recommendation that we think is actually important. Okay, and if you want more information on that, read the Science of Red Meat Intake article. We go into the, into the weeds there uh, on that stuff. Anything else? I don't think so. What's your favorite protein? Hmm. Favorite. I mean, there's only one answer. What do you want me to say, chicken? No, that's the wrong answer. Oh, it's steak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so mine is bacon. Okay. This is not a kosher yeah, establishment. I got you. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> what is the mechanism for the inflammatory process and autoimmune diseases contributing to muscle protein breakdown? Do you have references? Mm -hmm. Always. Would reducing inflammation first have increased the anabolic impact? Reducing inflammation before what? Um, not sure about the last part, Before but basically the, the question has to do with the inflammation, the real inflammation, as I said, that's present in uh, autoimmune conditions. Why does it contribute to muscle protein breakdown, loss of lean body mass, things like that? Yes, the mechanism has to do with what these chemicals that are called inflammatory cytokines. It's a fancy word describing inflammatory signaling molecules that circulate around in the blood. They're at elevated levels in all, almost all of these inflammatory conditions, both autoimmune disease, as well as cancer, as well as a bunch of other things. And at the end stage of this inflammatory process, you can get to this point that where somebody might be called cachectic. Cachexia is this condition where you've wasted away a bunch of your lean body mass and you've lost a bunch of your fat mass. Uh, and I see that frequently in patients who have been chronically very ill from one of these conditions. They're just skin and bones, no lean body mass and no fat mass, super high risk situation. Those are patients, again, who I mentioned, you know, having that low lean body mass, low functional status, even if let's say it's from cancer, they might not even be deemed eligible for treatment because they're too weak and frail and at risk for having really bad outcomes. They say, you know, the treatment is more likely to kill you uh, sooner than the condition itself. So it's these circulating inflammatory molecules. One example for the biochemistry folks is like a TNF-alpha and some of the interleukin molecules. Um, in for, as far as references, uh, I gave a lecture on this topic, signaling mole, uh, molecular signaling with muscle protein synthesis and breakdown uh, in the past. And one of the best papers uh, that I referenced on it was called uh, Molecular Networks in Skeletal Muscle Plasticity. It was written by Hopler and his colleagues. Um, or you can just Google anything about cachexia and inflammation, C-A-C-H-E-X-I-A, -E and that's and, and inflammation, and that you'll basically go down that rabbit hole of why chronic systemic inflammation can contribute to muscle protein breakdown. Uh, you can see how these signaling molecules directly block anabolic signaling, and they contribute to atrophy. So they block building and they promote atrophy, which is bad news, obviously. So, and treating the inflammation can improve anabolic sensitivity. So if you get the inflammation under control, they're more likely to respond to anabolic stimuli, training, exercise, nutrition. Yeah, that's what I was getting with the last part. So like reducing inflammation, will that improve anabolic impact? Yeah, treating yeah. the condition. Yes, in, in these actual inflammatory cases yes. that uh, typically need medical management, yes, that will improve things like muscle mass, uh, uh, gain in muscle protein synthesis. On the other hand, lowering your, you know, inflammation when you don't have one of these medical conditions from a little to very little does nothing. Yeah. That's a twud. What strategies do you use in your approach to correcting misinformation or misunderstanding in various settings? Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so what strategy, we'll start with the first one and then, uh, yeah, so other than holding barbell medicine seminars and all the information that is already being disseminated through barbell medicine, of course. Let me tell you a story. So the story is uh, about my life. Um, I previously, 
uh, particularly early on in barbell medicine, I thought it was my job to police the internet to make sure that no BS was being written anywhere that could potentially harm anyone, and I needed to correct everybody. Uh, that's a fool's errand, because not only can you never get anywhere close to all of it, uh, you're not actually changing anyone's mind. Um, I still do this from time to time because I'm not very smart. I told you my GPA earlier, so you guys should be well aware of like my ability to like learn things, so not high. Uh, so I still do this at times because either I am a glutton for punishment or just, again, not smart, don't learn a lesson. But one thing I've realized is that uh, more productive use of my time, our time, is to actually just create more information. So effectively, like, if somebody's saying something silly on the internet, like, I can't stop them from saying that, and me directly challenging them is unlikely to work out in my favor. But if I write an article about that particular thing or make, like, a long, you know, series, like a tutorial or, like, a, a Instagram story, you know, rant thing, that'll reach way more people, help more people, whatever. I particularly like writing stuff or making a YouTube video or whatever, it's stuff that doesn't disappear uh, and is long-lasting content that tends to be uh, good because a lot of people are going to see it then it's there, I can refer people to it, and then it allows me to really flesh out my ideas. The cool thing is, uh, if I can find some common ground with that person who I originally disagreed with, uh, on occasion, you can sort of strike up a conversation based on that. Uh, it's rare, but it has happened before where I end up agreeing with people that have initially been like, oh no, this makes me angry because you're wrong. But uh, it's possible. So my recommendation is for like how to go about this is not correcting people. That writing reflex uh, can occur. Uh, I do think in professional settings, it's a little different because usually if you come in guns a-blazing with a bunch of evidence that you're willing to just give people and say, hey, if you have some time, check this out, read it particularly if they're guidelines or like, you know, bulletins or whatever, those tend to be like, oh, shoot, I didn't actually know this. Um, so I think you can do that in professional settings, but in more uh, social settings or like on, on social media or amongst friends, I probably just wouldn't do that. And I'd focus on putting out, creating original content. That would be my, my take. Yeah, I agree. The context matters a whole lot here. And so within the public sphere, the social media sphere, things like that, I'll go ahead and say I'm uh, smarter than Jordan uh, and that I just don't do it. Uh, I don't care to engage with, with people or argue people with people or try to go out and, and correct misinformation. Um, I'm happy to just here are my recommendations. Here's why these are my recommendations. And uh, you people out there are free to take them or not. And that's kind of your decision. Um, and so I actually take a similar approach with, with patients even because sometimes clinicians, doctors, healthcare professionals um, can get really, really, really overly invested in like paternalistic and like feel excessively responsible for this stuff. And assuming that I have discussed with somebody and feel like I've gotten them adequately educated and I, can, and I know that I've gotten through to them and my message is clear and been understood, if they choose to pursue a different route with things, then fine, I feel like I've done my job. Um, whereas sometimes people might take offense to it if somebody doesn't follow their advice or they might really beat themselves up or get too you know, worked up about it. Um, I see this more often when, when patients say they want to leave the hospital uh, during the course of my treatment, and, <laughs> and I go and I educate them about why I'm recommending maybe they stay and if, if I have more work to do or whatever. And if they say, no, I'm, I'm leaving, then okay. You know, I can't really beat myself up too much about that. And in social media, I ignore all of that stuff. I definitely don't go down the rabbit hole of arguing with people or I get tagged every day in things. People like, here, look at this. What are your thoughts? I don't have thoughts. My thoughts have been expressed elsewhere. Um, and you can, again, take my recommendations or not, and that's fine. Um, one day we're all going to die and things are going to be just fine. So um, that doesn't bother me. In the professional setting, among other doctors, among other clinicians, I know, or at least I like to think, that I'm among peers who are going to be more receptive to evidence. And so if you've watched any of my lectures that I've given to other doctors on sarcopenia or the, the cancer lecture or really any of my, my talks that I've given, uh, my slides are just littered with references and graphs and data and things like that. And that's something that I, uh, it's, a, it's, it's obviously important for how we practice, but it's also a strategy to actually convince people that, hey, I actually, you know, know what I'm talking about here. And here's my justification for my belief. Whereas in society, 
uh, for a lot of this stuff, you don't necessarily need to have a really strong justification for your belief. You can just have beliefs. So if, if you listen to uh, uh, our last rehab podcast from Reno's Q&A, Michael Ray talked about uh, this YouTube channel that we all, that, that me and him, he, he introduced me to called uh, Street Epistemology. And it's a guy who is actually in San Antonio and he goes around and he'll meet somebody and he'll talk to them a little bit and he'll elicit, he's like, tries to get them to make a claim about something that they believe. And then very gently, kindly, he'll start to delve into this belief and ask them just kind of pointed questions to try to get at the heart of why they believe what they believe. Oftentimes it ends up going down into like religion and things like that. But he's very good at it uh, in terms of getting to why people believe what they believe. But overwhelmingly what he ends up showing is people can't justify oftentimes what they believe. They just make shit up and they just believe what they believe. And um, we're very, uh, we're very stupid creatures. And so, like Jordan said, it's a fool's errand to go out and try to save the world and correct everything that's wrong out there. So I just don't do it yeah. and wouldn't recommend it. Uh, have you been in an argument in the last week? Have I been in an argument in the last week? No. I've been in two. You've been in two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, to be fair, it's not my fault. One of them was like a, st- a scheduled podcast on like injury and yes. technique. Sure. Yes. So that I did that. To myself. Yes. But the second one, this guy was making the claim that because doctors don't receive like advanced nutrition training during medical school, that they should not be counseling patients on dietary changes. To which my reply is, why do you need to know all these intricacies to, in, to do the behavioral change counseling? You don't. Just like you don't need to be a programming whiz or like a you know, high level coach in order to help people in, you know, achieve these physical activity guideline minimums. You don't need that. You need to be experienced to know what to do for troubleshooting, for like performance, right? Or have a big toolbox for cueing people in real time, sure. But to the extent that you need this huge fund of knowledge just to like be able to draw up some initial recommendations, like I don't think you need that. Or to act, I would prefer that, in fact, your toolkit was more robustly stocked with behavioral counseling techniques. Yeah, I mean, most of you guys who are here this weekend, you probably are now feeling a little bit more comfortable at what the basic outlines of what we would recommend as a healthy dietary pattern might look like, right? So energy intake and protein, fiber, how the fat distribution looks like, and then within that, there's tons of latitude. So cool, you don't need to have hyper-advanced training to be able to counsel somebody on some of that stuff. But having those conversations is the hard part. Under what clinical cases are you using the advanced lipid testing? Does it change counseling efficacy outcomes in the setting of mild to moderate elevated non HDL to change lifestyle behaviors. Let's back up. What is advanced lipid testing? So the basic lipid panel, as I discussed in the lecture, involved measuring total cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL cholesterol, and then off of that is oftentimes calculated an LDL cholesterol level. And then the best metric, again, off of that is to take the total, subtract the HDL, and get a non-HDL cholesterol level. That's the best metric off of the standard lipid panel. None Non-advanced. What is... What are some examples of advanced lipid testing? So advanced lipid testing would involve things like measuring what we call an ApoB level, an apolipoprotein B level would be one example. Others would be direct particle measurements. So measuring not the cholesterol on the particles, but the particles themselves, so LDL particle concentration, for example, the lipo profile, the NMR, things like that are advanced lipid testing. Probably the main situation where I'd order one of these advanced tests is if I have somebody who I have been treating them, I have their blood lipids where I want them to be, and yet they're still having cardiovascular problems. For example, somebody's blood lipids look great, and they're coming in and they're still having, they, they just had a new heart attack. Well, we got a problem, right? Because I have you where I think I would like you to be, but you just had another event, a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. So there are sometimes situations where the standard lipid test might not tell us all the information we need. So somebody who's having these sorts of events, heart attacks or strokes with blood lipids that otherwise look good, then I'd probably measure an ApoB level, I'd measure a lipoprotein A level, and I'd start treating things more aggressively from there to get their risk down further. Otherwise, I don't really measure them. And does having all this information like change how patients respond to your counseling techniques? No. Okay. Yep. Wouldn't check it otherwise. Yes. Yeah, more information is not always better. Any tips or techniques you find generally helpful for increasing motivation or discipline in training? Oof. I mean, this is a tough one. It is a tough one, but I, I think I, I go back to some of the stuff we talked about during the behavioral change uh, lecture, and then additionally we kind of kept sprinkling in. Like, I think you should enjoy this. 
So I, I think you should enjoy not only the training you're doing, but uh, and the components of that, but the actual process. So like your goal-oriented uh, training. Um, so I think if somebody's like really having a hard time like sticking to it, I'd wonder like, do you like what you're doing? Is this enjoyable for you? And and if it is, great. So what's holding you back? Because there are some things that you know come up that people generally uh, respond to in a in a way where they 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 might need some additional counseling. So like for instance, if somebody misses day one of the workout, I've seen it a lot of times where people will just not work out the rest of the week. They're like, I missed my first day, this week's off, I'm just gonna repeat this week next week. They, they, it's like an all or none phenomenon. And it's like, no, don't do that. Or like, <laughs> or like, no, but if I don't work out today, then tomorrow's my scheduled rest day, then I'll have to work out tomorrow, and then have two workouts back to back, and that's like bad because I need to perform optimally on all these days. And it's like, no, no, just put all the workouts together. We have a, like a literally a, a litany of different questions on our forum that's like, hey, I'm leaving town for the week. Uh, on Thursday, on Friday, and I have four workouts to do this week, what do? And it's like, work out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Go on your vacation. And I don't say that like to be dismissive, right? But it's like, the actual acute performance during your workout doesn't really matter as much as you getting the total training. So uh, that's just one common thing that I see all the time that people are struggling for time, resources in order to train. And I think uh, working around that can help people stay adherent to the training program provided they like what they're doing. But if someone hates what they're doing, right, or is fearful of what they're doing, um, that's problematic. The third thing that I find really important is the social aspect here. So if people are doing this by themselves, so like they have a home gym and they're the only one in their house that uses the home gym, or if none of their family members work out, even immediate or extended, none of their friends work out, they're just effectively leaving their social circle. They're saying, I've got to leave my family, i got to leave all my friends, and I go to the gym where I don't know the, many people. That's a hard sell for a lot of people. And so I think that to the degree you can leverage social support, you can make things more uh, effect, uh, like economical from a time perspective, and then make it enjoyable. Those are my big sort of things that you can practically apply to the programming uh, uh, and the social support network to get people to adhere to training. Um, but as far as actually finding motivation in, in people, that's, that's tough. You know, you got to give them the old Gipper talk, like why, you know, what do you want to do with this? What do you want to get out of this? Where do you want to be in three months, six months, 12 months? You know, how do your uh, actions on a daily basis lead you closer to or further away from that particular goal? Something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I don't love the, I don't, I don't love centering this discussion around the idea of discipline at all. Uh, we've talked in some of our previous Q and A's and on podcasts and stuff like that, that, you know, in the past decade, we can count how many workouts we've missed on one hand or less. Um, even last week when I was laid up with the flu, I still went out and did my deadlift day on Tuesday. And like I said, I almost passed out trying to pull four Oh five and people might say, you're an idiot. You're crazy for trying to go do that. And I was like, well, I, I think back to that day, right. I'm having like coughing and chills and sweats on the couch and I feel like shit. Why did I go out to the gym and try to do that? Was it because I'm just like a total badass and more disciplined than anyone else on earth? No, it's because I actually enjoy training. And I got up that day and I was like, well, today would normally be a training day and I like training. So it would make me feel better, maybe, if I went out and tried to do something. Now, I probably tried to pull more than I was ready for on that day, right? But I did it because I actually enjoy training. If I loathed training, if I hated training, and I felt that sick, that's like double barrier to try to go out and do that thing, right? So I look back to why have we not missed a training session in the past decade, basically, or a couple, right? Because we actually enjoy training. And to the extent that maybe we've, we've both definitely like skipped out on certain like, say, social engagements or something because training was more important to us, it's because we enjoy doing that. Right. So the enjoyment piece, I think, is underemphasized, underrated. It's not that, you know, we're just like better than you because we can do this thing that we hate. Right. Even when we don't want to. Hey, we actually enjoy doing this thing. So I think finding that like why you're doing this and trying to play that up is a bigger piece there than just saying you're not disciplined enough to do this. Right. You're a bad person because. You, you didn't do this session because you're not disciplined enough. I don't think that that's uh, a good way to view human behavior, really, in general. Also, Rick Ross helps. Always. Instant PRs. Instant PRs. Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, let's see. If butter is to be limited in a healthy diet, 
Where do you rank other dairy products with high fat content? Cream, certain cheeses, certain brands of whole milk with four to five percent milk fat. Yeah. So uh, Austin, I know you mentioned this. Um, just yeah, we got we get a lot of questions about this. We got one recently in our group. Yeah. So dairy. So, so just to go back to the kind of beginning of this, the overall recommendation with respect to saturated fat intake is to keep it less than 10% of total daily calories. Uh, in particular, the main focus there is going to be saturated fat from red meat. It appears that dairy, like saturated fat from dairy, does not appear to have the same deleterious effect that red meat does. In fact, there may actually be some like beneficial effects from dairy consumption. Um, that being said, this, the recommendation still is less than 10% of your total daily calories from saturated fat. To the degree you can fit butter in there, cream, milk with 5% fat, which probably tastes great. It's probably, but you have to probably drink it with a spoon. Like you can't even like, you have to like, yeah. it's fine. But I, I think, again, if we start with the 10%, saturated fat from total of total daily calories that's like the initial start and then most of that the biggest concern there is red meat intake yeah i think that you know when i talk about dairy with people it tends to be limited to non-butter dairy sources there's actually some evidence that there are some like there's this concept that we didn't even touch on because again everything is way more complicated and even what we delivered to you guys this weekend was like markedly simplified uh, there's this concept called the food matrix yeah. and it has to do with kind of like the chemical structure of the food and the proteins and other molecules that are involved in it and those can all alter the physiological effects of a given food and so in the course of processing a dairy uh, 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 type food into butter, for example, it actually removes some factors that end up ultimately being quite protective. And so when I'm talking about dairy, I tend to limit it to non-butter dairy sources. And so saturated fats from non-butter dairy sources, I tend to actually not sweat that much. Uh, but the processing that ends up uh, uh, producing butter out of it tends to remove a lot of these protective factors that result in butter being somewhat be, being more deleterious and more harmful from blood lipid cardiovascular risk standpoint. So um, I tend to not sweat the non-butter dairy sources or saturated fat from those sources very do, much. Do you put butter in your coffee? Uh, never would I ever do that. Do you put coconut oil in your coffee? That sounds, that sounds awful. Do you brush your teeth with coconut oil? Jordan said, oh boy, you know, anytime I see that in a question, I'm just like, I probably didn't say that. Yeah, but. I probably didn't say that, but here we are. Uh, Jordan said during the seminar that enjoyment and exercise has the biggest impact on adherence. Oh, that's true. I did say that. Uh, coming back to lifting after a long layoff, I found it difficult to find enjoyment with weights that are so far below what I used to be able to do. Any suggestions or resources on how to start enjoying training again? I don't have any resource. I don't have any resources on this. It'd be great if we had a book that was like. In, enjoying training, like just like a whole book on like how to make starting enjoyment. Yeah, starting st starting pl starting pleasure, right? You know, just yes, lifting weights is very pleasurable. Um, yeah, that's gross. So the <laughs> yeah, starting hedonism. Starting hedonism. Yeah, a, a way to use light weights to yeah. All right, I, I actually do have a strategy for this because this is this happened to me. I did CrossFit for like eight months. Yeah, I, I experimented with the dark dark arts. And uh, I lost a substantial amount of weight and a substantial amount of strength. Now, I'm not sure those two, two things were related because I wasn't really lifting weights during that time. I was doing a bunch of Olympic lifts and uh, it just, I wasn't squatting, benching or deadlifting. And yeah, my weight uh, went, went, went down as well. So when I came back, I remember I squatted, I used Leah's belt. This is how like, yeah, yes, yes. This is how this is how like cachectic I was. <laughs> I was a hundred. I remember I came. We, Tom and I came back from Australia, and I was eighty four kilos, eighty five kilos, which is like all of one hundred and eighty five pounds or something like that. And I used Leah's belt, and I squatted one hundred and eighty kilos, which is three ninety six, for a hard triple, a hard triple. To be to be clear, I've benched that before for a triple, so like things were bad, <laughs> and I was like. Uh, what? So I'd recently decided to like quit doing CrossFit because I didn't like it, and that yeah, so enjoyment was low, and I was like, I'll just go back to powerlifting because I love that. And then I did powerlifting for one day, and I was like, no, where's all my strength? Um, so the strategy that I used uh, on the exercises that I had a lot of history with, so squat, bench, deadlift, I changed the rep range to things I didn't have experience with. So for example, I had never really done. Uh, squats or bench or deadlift for sets of eight and ten. I stuck I stuck to mostly those, and I picked different exercise variations that I had very little experience with and uh, previously, so that I didn't have this like historical like performance 
uh, barometer that I kept going up against. Um, and so I did that. And honestly, I remember it was like six to eight weeks after I came back, I was within about 10% of my normal strength levels. And so I was happy again and could train like relatively regularly. The benefits of this are kind of twofold. One, you don't hate yourself every time you go to the gym and think, woe is me, this is the worst I've ever performed in my whole life. And then benefit number two is that you're sort of slow, gradually retraining yourself to do a different thing. So remember, I'd been doing CrossFit for eight months. I was not squatting, benching, and deadlifting like I was during my normal powerlifting training. Had I just switched back to powerlifting with no sort of bridge in between, that could have potentially been problematic for me. However, I had this sort of on-ramp where I was able to sort of get back to that normal training, and so that worked out pretty well for me. So generally, that's how I recommend folks do that. If they have a specific goal that's different than their normal that we've been training for for a while, and then they want to go back to a previous type of training, I put program this like GPP-related bridge where the rep ranges are different, the exercise selection is different, so they don't have this, like again, historical thing that they're comparing themselves against each single time. You can do that a lot of different ways. You can do that with rep ranges. You can do it with adding chains or bands or different barbells or different sort of range of motion or tempo. There's a whole different things, a lot of different things you can use. I just uh, actually dealt with this very scenario, although not entirely due to a liftoff. I had a patient of mine who I uh, have been working with for a little while who was recently diagnosed with cancer. And specifically, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And one of the standard treatments for prostate cancer is what's called androgen deprivation therapy, where you basically get put on uh, testosterone blockers. You can think of it like that. You get like chemically castrated, basically, to prevent androgen stimulating the prostate cancer from growing anymore. So we're intentionally making him hypogonadal. And he was observing that his performance was going down in the gym. When you're truly hypogonadal, then sure, we would, ex you know, we would expect that your performance is going to be altered with that. And he was having some distress over this because he pulled 500 at nationals last year. And now he's like, I'm seeing my numbers start to change. And so, uh, uh, what, what should I do? I'm not really loving training now that I'm weaker. And I just said, we need to change the metrics of performance here. We need to pick some different exercises, right? Rather than a competition squat and a competition deadlift and a pause bench press, we need to pick some other things that you haven't done before, give you some new opportunities to PR, right? So now that if you're gonna be doing pause squats and deficit deadlifts and stuff like that, every time you train is gonna be a PR. And so we changed the strategy and uh, he's now fully on board with that idea and training with some different, different things. So again, same deal so that he doesn't have this constant prior performance to compare himself to. Uh, so that's what we did with him. So uh, effectively the same thing, just do different things and you'll have uh, less of a metric of comparison. Yeah, just change the goalposts. Yeah. Boom. All right, two co-workers were discussing their supposed back problems together. Both were told by their doctors that they have permanent life-altering conditions with their backs. These sedentary office workers are convinced that they are disabled, handicapped parking spots and all. However, they're visibly fine as they get around the office with no issues. Without them asking for my help, how can I address this without scarring or in, oh, scaring or insulting them, if at all possible? In general, they are stubborn just like the rest of us. Uh, I don't think there's anything you can do, to be frank. Uh, well, I'm Jordan, but to be frank, I don't think there's anything you can do. And your do the doctor was right. They have permanent life-altering conditions uh, in their backs, just like all of us do. Having a back. Having a back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and things change over time. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure the medical legal process that you have to go through to get a handicapped parking spot. You need to get a doctor to sign your form. Right, correct. So that's <laughs> probably probably there. And you know, maybe this is all just a ploy for the, for the handicap sign. You know, I don't know. Maybe they go swing dancing every Friday night. You don't know. Um, but, but, but the point is, you're asking, how can you get somebody to change their behavior all right, without being able to engage them and then go through the rest of those steps. So uh, focusing, evoking, and then planning together. You guys don't have that relationship. You haven't established it, so you, you can't. The, the simple answer is you can't. And I don't mean that to say you shouldn't even try and it's not worth trying, no, everything's meaningless, we're all gonna eventually re-enter the carbon cycle, although that's true. Um, I think that because you can't establish any sort of relationship with the person that you're probably best suited by directing your efforts towards other things. Yeah. Yeah, I would say two things here. I would say, number one, I would caution you against making assumptions about what's actually going on with this person. 
uh, it may seem like they're getting, you know, it says they're, they're visibly fine as they get around the office, but just making assumptions is generally problematic. So you don't actually know what's going on with them, what their history is, uh, what they actually have going on. Uh, but number two, you know, we know that actually one of the big predictors of long-term disability from uh, back pain is actually the potential for some sort of positive gain, like monetary compensation, for example. I've dealt with this before when working in the military system or in the VA system, for example, where uh, uh, getting your like level of disability upgraded can result in higher levels of monetary compensation or other sorts of like secondary benefits. And that is not my favorite way of a system being set up because it incentivizes disability basically, right? There are benefits to being disabled so that rather than there being benefits or incentivizing people to improve and return to their normal function. So you're up against a really tough situation here. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, as far as uh, addressing disinformation, I think you're uh, uh, best spending that time and effort not doing that, not really addressing that and letting that person live their life. And if they approach you and say, man, I see what you're doing in the gym and living your life and I'm interested in that, then there you go. Your foot has been firmly put in the door and you can, you can start to have that conversation. But otherwise, um, I probably wouldn't go out of my way. Uh, you, sometimes we have to, we all have to accept, uh, that we can't save the world. And that's just kind of the way it is. So what's that phrase? It's like, it's not the live, laugh, love, but it's like, please grant me the serenity to accept the things like, I don't know. It's like, a, it's, it's right after live, laugh, love. It's like the second. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you know, uh, focusing on the things that you can control and letting go of the things you can. It's one of these stoic philosophy things. Yeah, sure. Yes. Sure. Sure. I'm going to get that tattooed on my ankle. All right. Sick. <laughs> Last question. Based on the nutrition lecture, it seems that there isn't any significance placed on timing of macro consumption over the course of a day. Is that for simplicity or because there's really no evidence to support its importance? I put this in there specifically to trigger you. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you about chrononutrition? Yeah. So, so, um, <laughs> If you keep your ear to the ground and you're, you're on the interwebs, then you're, you're likely aware of this emerging science about chrononutrition, effectively like where you, what time during the day you end up consuming the bulk of your, your nutrition. It's an emerging area of research and there's some evidence suggesting that individuals who consume the bulk of their calories earlier in the day may have better outcomes with respect to weight loss uh, and body composition, stuff like that, uh, than if you consume the bulk of your calories later on in the day. A couple problems with this, the control of like uh, these studies is, is pretty, pretty rough, meaning that they're not keeping these people under like lock and key and saying, you guys are all gonna eat the same amount of calories. It's basically free living individuals. So it's likely the individuals who did not lose as much weight or who had worse body composition likely consumed more calories. That's the most likely explanation, but I'm not ready to write this off and say there's nothing there. I think a lot of this has to do with adherence, and I know that there's additional data corroborating this idea of eating during a certain time of the day based on how consistent you are with eating the similar meals at a given time during the day. I also know that working out what time you work out might have an impact on your chrononutrition. So for example, if you work out in the evening, then it doesn't really matter as much that you consume the bulk of your nutrition earlier on in the day versus later on in the day. So where do I stand on this right now? I think that we would like to develop a dietary plan that you can adhere to long-term, that you can consistently hit day in and day out, right? And that uh, ultimately supports whatever you need to do with respect to your weight, whether it be lose weight, maintain weight, gain weight, and supports your uh, physical activity levels. Should you bias the bulk of your nutrition to earlier in the day? If you work out earlier in the day, I'd be more comfortable saying that. Uh, rather, I, I, and I don't think that I could say that you should uh, bias your nutrition, you know, any which any particular place um, outside of something that improves adherence with the actual diet. I don't know if you have anything addition that you want to. Not much else. I just know that the chrononutrition topic gets you going. It so. doesn't trigger. It doesn't <laughs> trigger me. It's just. I think that you know people in general with respect to medical research, there are people who like read either biomedical research or nutrition research, and as soon as they see it, they're like, "Yep, that's a new thing. I want it. That's my. That is 
my jam. I'm gonna, you know, make an Instagram infographic about it, and then I'm gonna be the guru on this. Even though, even if there's not enough information to know about this stuff right now, that's like the people who say they're gut biome experts, right? And they don't have a PhD, MD after their name, right? You are not a gut microbiome expert. You're, you know, a YouTuber or something, <laughs> right? And you're selling poop teas and waist trainers. It's problematic, okay? Um, with respect to chrononutrition, I know of uh, two experts on this right now. One is Alan Flanagan. You can read more about this at his website, which is called alinea.com. Uh, or he's also on Sigma Nutrition. So if you're interested in the stuff, you can check out both of those places. Um, but I don't necessarily have a firm opinion on how we should structure our meals through the day outside of improving adherence. Uh, I agree overall. And I think that to your last point, uh, there's an excellent article that I'd recommend that anybody who's a clinician uh, probably read. And to the extent that it's accessible to non-clinicians, if you're a coach, uh, it's an article by some uh, bright folks called The Case for Being a Medical Conservative. And basically, it's along the lines of what Jordan was just saying, where there's tons of like latest, greatest, you know, like new hotness that comes out in the biomedical literature. Yeah. And in general, it's a fool's errand to immediately take up uh, this stuff and, and be like, you know, 100% on the train for things, because most things don't work when it comes down to it. Most things that we do don't work. So uh, there's, a, there's a case for being a medical conservative insofar as you are kind of a late adopter of things once a sufficient body of evidence has accumulated to support a particular uh, idea, belief, or, or, or kind of treatment approach. And so I think that's probably where we are right now in terms of where our emphasis is with respect to nutrition. We are probably not at the point where we're micromanaging when people eat uh, in, uh, compared to what they're eating. Uh, but if more evidence comes out, um, I know that uh, Flanagan, who, uh, who, who I coach, and I get very amusing check-ins from about how he's like plant-powered and things like that in, nice. his, in his powerlifting training. Um, he's doing some of his PhD research on this stuff. They're actually locking some people in a lab and doing some like jet lag effects on how that influences their metabolic uh, processes and things like that. Maybe we will be convinced by, by more of this stuff to emphasize it more. But as of now, I think the nutrition guidelines that we laid out with respect to you know, energy intake, protein, fiber, uh, fat proportions, things like that, and then outside of that, the beauty of that having that such limited uh, uh, recommendations is that there's tons of room for individualization, preference, variability outside of that. So if people like to fast or they don't, People like certain foods or other foods within those guidelines, there's tons of room and they have tons of options to you. And that's a good thing. The more recommendations and restrictions and limitations, uh, it's just going to become harder to adhere to. So let's, you know, uh, stick with what we have really good evidence for. And then uh, I'm fine with once somebody is meeting those things, if we want to manipulate the timing, then cool. But that's not my first, that's not my first priority with people. Well, people always want like the, like more rules. Like, yeah, no, you have to weird. do all of this stuff in order to be adherent. Yeah. The whole and life. You have, and you have to be super disciplined to do it, right? Because that makes you a good person. Well, right. So it's, yeah, you're like a samurai. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we did it. Hey, we did it. All right, San Diego, thank you guys so much for coming out. It's the end of our Q&A. Thank you so much for coming. Woo! See you guys later on. You could have seen us on the same show right there. Everything in a rose garden might go for me. Couldn't pinpoint in the globe, so I wanted to go from it. Just know that I don't fit in, but I wanna feel everything. Everything, yeah.